Let me join those who have already wished every father here a happy Father's Day. And let me thank the uh, pastor and the staff and elders here for agreeing to have me preach again. Not that I, I say agreeing as if I called up and said, may I preach? That didn't happen. But I'm always grateful for the opportunity to be here with you. Because it is Father's Day and it's a day that we are already remembering and honoring and, and considering our fathers, I thought the book of Job, the early part of it, would be appropriate. I want you to see an example first in Job and then through him to the Lord Jesus Christ of what a godly father looks like and some attitudes that we must internalize and train ourselves to develop if we are going to be the refuge for our children that they so desperately need. So before we read Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Blessed Father who taught us to pray by teaching us first and foremost to call you and to consider you as our Father, train us today in obedience that we might be men and women of God. Father, open your word to us through the romance of preaching that there would be a spark between the hearts of the people and the Holy Spirit as he mediates the truth of the word to the very depths of our being so that we begin to think and respond and talk and act differently than we would have if we had not heard this word. You know the depths of our depravity, even though we are, in many cases in this room, regenerate and born again. So, Father, grant us hearts that love the truth, minds that are pliable and able to receive it, able to focus on it and hear it, bodies that are attentive and can support the act of listening to what's being said, and Father, most of all, grant us affections to love the truth of your word and the truth giver behind it. So Father, sanctify us and consecrate us for these moments as we lay ourselves before you and the penetrating sword that is your word comes in and begins to rearrange us and do surgery on us. And if it's painful, Lord, then give us grace to understand you're at work for our good. And if it's joyful, then give us hearts that are lifted up to you to give you thanks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 1, first 12 verses. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and turned away from evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. 
And this Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reasons? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? And you have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is now in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Job here is called, first and foremost, a perfect son. In verse 3, you don't see it in the ESV from which I just read, but if you're carrying and reading the New King James or the King James, you'll see that rather than being called just a blameless and upright one, a man, he's called a son. Because first and foremost, Job is a son of God, and he has God as his father. But Job also has sons. So, like many of us, not only is he a child of God, but he is a father to his children. The Bible says that he had seven sons and three daughters. God had richly blessed he and his wife. And the Bible says that as a son of God and as a father, he was both blameless and upright. Some of your translations say a perfect man, a perfect man towards God. Not sinless, of course. But with all his heart, he wanted to obey God. And yet, when you read the book of Job, the story, the narrative that plays out is about how Job's heavenly father would take this blameless and upright man, this son of his, to greater heights of glory and greater depths of wisdom. In other words, Job, the entire story is about what it means to have God as your father in this world and how he so frequently brings us up to maturity. Job is a man who is blameless and upright in at least three senses. And fathers, I would hold these out as exemplary for us. That what we're about to see in this man, Job, in the beginning of the narrative are traits that we should seek to cultivate in our own life. The Bible says he was blameless and upright. That's laid out in verses 1 through 5 and then in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. And I think that's true in at least three senses was he blameless and upright. First of all, in his own personal faith, in his relationship with his heavenly father. The Bible defines his attitude and his actions in this way. It says he feared God and he turned away from evil. So Job, in his own personal life, in the midst of raising children and being a husband to his wife and owning a major estate with all that came with those responsibilities, did not fail, as we are so often to do in the busiest times of our life, to cultivate a rich 
relationship with his heavenly father. The Bible says that's where his attention was. He was a perfect and upright man. And becoming a godly man is not something that happens by accident or by casual acquaintance with spiritual things. If we're going to be fathers to our children and husbands to our wives, men, we must first of all become sons of the living God. And in this world that demands and craves every ounce of energy and attention we can give it, it's those blessings of God, those material blessings that Jesus warned us would choke out our spiritual life. And so if I were to ask you about your Bible reading plan, if I were to ask you about a scripture memory plan, if I were to ask you what you have voluntarily undertaken to know about God over the last 12 months, not something that was forced on you, but something that you actually absorbed. What plan do you have? What steps have you taken to become a man like Job, a man who was upright and feared the Lord? It will not happen by casual acquaintance with spiritual things. So in that sense, Job is an example for us, but... There's another sense in which he's an example, and that's not only in his personal relationship with his heavenly father, but in his relationship with his children. I think probably our spouses and our children are the ones who benefit the most from our dedication to become godly men. I think they're the ones who reap what we sow for good or bad. And so the investment is worth it, and Job made it. The Bible says that in verses 2 through 5, that while he owned all these things and had all these things, in verse 4 it says that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. So there was sort of this circular feast that this family would have on, on a given day. And they would have their brothers and sisters over to eat and drink. And these were Eastern biblical feasts. These were not standing eating over the sink on your way somewhere. These were big deals. And they would party. This was the kind of thing that if Jesus was there, he would have taken seven pitchers of water and turned them into wine. That would have been a good time to have him around. So these are day-long feasts, days for some time. And Job knew that in the course of those feasts that it was possible, maybe even probable, that his children, like him being sinners, that one of them had, as he says, sinned against God or cursed God in his heart for some reason. And so Job took steps as the priest over that household, as the spiritual leader not to leave his children's spiritual lives to themselves only, not to say it's not right for me to interfere, I'll just sort of give them all the options and let them make up their mind, but Job would call them to himself when they were done, consecrate them, set them aside, tell them, perk up now, you need to listen, I want to talk to you about your spiritual life. And in the case that they had sinned, the Bible says he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And no doubt, as he offered these sacrifices, he uttered their names and lifted those individual children with their individual temptations and weaknesses and blessings 
up before the throne of God. And the Bible says this he did continually. So in his personal relationship with God, he's an example. And in his relationship with his children, he is an example. It is what one writer, when he read of Job's actions here, he called the ministry of small things. Those hidden secret acts done by a loving father when the rest of the family is still in the bed. Lifting his children's names up before the throne of God, pleading with God for their spiritual welfare. The ministry of small things. The things that go unnoticed and most frequently unappreciated, done in private out of the viewing eyes of the family or friends. Those are the important things. The ministry of small things. Don't you think that parenting, those of you that are blessed to be parents, so often comes down to how we handle the small things? If we take care of the moments, the individual moments that don't seem important in and of themselves, if we take care of those moments, the years will take care of themselves. Job did not neglect those moments. And he didn't neglect them because he understood something that's so fundamental to understanding covenants, which is this. That when God declared him to be the head of that household and priest over that household, he was responsible for everything that happened in that household. We as Americans have a very individualistic concept when it comes to everything. It's not bad. It's just in a lot of cases wrong. So it is bad. <laughs> I've tried to put a smiley face on it. But Job understood this fundamental principle of leading, which is this, that while I may not as a leader be guilty of every transgression that happens under my leadership, I am certainly responsible for every transgression that happens under my leadership. While I may not individually be guilty of the sins my children commit, I am responsible for those sins. And so a husband and a father can never look at his family and say, well, I know I've got my problems, but they've got their problems too. No, brother, their problems are your problems. And it is incumbent upon you to accept that responsibility over your household. Job is an example of what it means to not individually be guilty of a sin, but be willing to take responsibility for those sins. So he is an example to us dads in his personal relationship with God and in his familial relationship with his children. And thirdly, he is an example to us in his spontaneous Reaction to unexpected suffering. Now this one is the most convicting for me personally. Because a secret conversation took place to which Job was not privy. And an agreement was made between his heavenly father and the angelic presence and mediators that sort of oversaw much of the dealings on the earth. And nobody consulted Job as to whether he wanted to go through what he was about to go through. 
So he didn't know that he was about to lose everything that he had. He didn't know that his world was about to fall apart. We usually don't do it. In fact, this entire story turns on one phrase that's used three times here in verse 6 of chapter 1, verse 13 of chapter 1, and verse 1 of chapter 2. So 1, 6, 1, 13, and 2, 1. And it's this phrase that begins those paragraphs. Now there was a day. There was a day that God had a conversation with Satan that Job didn't know about. That coincided with a day that the wind of God and the fire of God fell upon Job's family and his possessions and all that he had and eventually would fall upon his body. And there was a day that his health would fall apart until he found himself sitting on a heap of ashes, scratching himself with broken pieces of pottery. This was the greatest man in the East the day before that happened. And so Job didn't have time to have a press release prepared for what had happened. God help him if he was a politician. No speech writer, just spontaneous words flowing forth from the deepest part of his being when he's lost all that he had. And so if you want to see what a man is, watch what he mumbles under his breath when unexpected suffering comes. Watch his eyes and see if they roll. Watch and see if self-pity overtakes him. Or unbelief annihilates him. Watch what he is when unexpected suffering comes. And there's no time to prepare for it. But truthfully, all of our life is preparation for those moments. Because every one of us eventually are going to find ourselves sitting on that pot of clay, on that pot of ashes, that pile of ashes scratching ourselves with what's left over from the remnants of a given part of our life. Every one of us will know some type of crushing agony in this life. In fact, it's so often what God uses to reveal what we really are and then to begin to work to make us what we ought to be. Sometimes rock bottom becomes a solid place to put your feet and begin to grow. But at rock bottom, spontaneous, unexpected, unplanned, unscripted, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, the Bible says when Job heard all that had happened, he arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And his worship containing words said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job was. Job was a man who could say the Lord gave. He knew where his blessings had come from. And the Lord has taken away, and I bless the name of the Lord. Life doesn't happen in scripted moments. You know this in the family because in the family our conversations are the least scripted. Right? It's never when I have time to prepare a response that I get in trouble. I can prepare a response. I'm used to doing that. 
to making up reasons why I did what I did and putting a, a nice face on it, right? I can prepare a response. Somebody missed out on a great speech writer to turn things in their favor when they didn't hire me for that job. <laughs> it's the unscripted moments that get me in trouble. It's the grunt under your breath when your wife asks you a question, right? It's the closing of the door a little too hard. Right? It's the, the slight eye roll that she has become so in tune with after 19 years that she probably sees it when she's not in the room. <laughs> it, it's those moments that reveal a lacking maturity. That if, if this book wasn't called Job, but Shane, it probably wouldn't say an upright and mature man. Those unscripted moments that we have to cultivate an inner reality that sustains us through those times. In other words, you say, how do you get to that point? It's not magic. Job becomes such a great example because the Bible says that the things he did in verse 5, he did continually. In other words, he practiced sanctification. And that becomes the key word practice. It was a regular, continual part of his life. Job wasn't the kind of guy that made great pledges of what he was going to do in his Bible reading plan and then stopped three months in. He wasn't the kind of guy that said this year is going to be different and then it never was different. He wasn't the kind of guy that set the family down and made all kinds of grand promises and then didn't follow through. He developed his character in secret outside of their view, and he then practiced at his interactions with them so that in all of life his theology about God was formed so deeply that he was trained to respond to unexpected suffering by blessing the name of the Lord. And that's the difference between being taught and being trained. That's the difference between being taught well and being trained. You can be taught well, but if you're only taught, you still have to think about your responses. But when you are trained by that faithful teaching, the responses are automatic. And you don't have to fake it. That was Job. That was Job. He had practiced his faith in private for so long and among his family for so long that his reactions spontaneously were pleasing to God such that God said he never sinned against him with his words. And by the way, he didn't do this in a perfect environment because his wife had trained herself in unbelief. The Bible says her spontaneous reaction to Job's suffering in chapter 2, verse 9, when she spoke, she asked Job this question, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, thank you, Miss Encouraging. <laughs> Imagine Job and his suffering looking to his wife for help and finding her saying, you're still babbling on about having integrity, about wholehearted devotion to God. Just curse him and get it over with. That'd be a whole other sermon about our excuses about being surrounded by unspiritual people, which is why we're unspiritual.
but it's a whole other sermon. So Job was responding to the loss of everything. And you say, you, if you're theological in, in your thoughts and, and you kind of look at this verse, you say, well, Shane, but didn't he blesses God and he says God gave and God take away, but didn't Satan really do that? The answer to that is easy, yes and no. It's easy. Satan did what God gave him permission to do. That's all he's been able to do ever. Life and death, blessing and cursing have always been in the hand of God. And Job knew that. He knew where his blessings came from and he knew where his suffering came from. And he knew that his heavenly father was using this training regiment, this particular form of suffering to bring him to maturity. What the adversary, which is the literal name that our Bibles translate as Satan, what the adversary hated about Job was his holiness and his happiness. Matthew Henry said the holiness and happiness of the saints become the shame and torment of the devil and the devil's children. The happiness and holiness of the saints become the torment of the devil and his devil's children. Satan can't stand a happy Christian. And so he accuses, which is what he does, before the throne of God, the saints of God. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. He's been doing this for thousands of years and Job wasn't going to escape it. And he says, God, Job serves you because you've blessed him. And God simultaneously does two things. Number one, he shuts the devil up, which is the one point of everything that he does, which is just to shut the devil up. By showing him that his accusation was untrue. But in shutting the devil up, he also worked for the good of his son. To bring him to greater glory and a deeper wisdom. And so when the fire of God, as it says here, fell on the house of Job, and the storm of God blew down the house of Job, Job knew where that fire and wind had come from. If you're a student of the scripture, when you see the fire of God in Job, you know that's not an isolated occurrence of it. It was the same fire Moses saw in the burning bush. It was the same fire, the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. It was the fire that fell on Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel. It was the radiating glory of God that shone from the inner room of the temple, the most holy place. And it was the fire that fell and devoured every sacrifice, every offer to God under the old covenant. Job knew where that fire came from. And he knew where that wind came from, that storm. That storm, literally, the word ruach, meaning Holy Spirit, who's often associated with the winds and storms. Even in creation, the Bible says that the Spirit of God, like the wind, was hovering over creation. He knew the Spirit was behind these acts, even if Satan had been the actual perpetrator of them. And it would be from that same storm that knocked his house down and crushed his children that God would speak to him later in this book. And we don't have time to get into it, but I hope you know how this story ends. This is the death and resurrection of a man called Job. God raised him up, and as he so frequently does, broke him down to nothing and then raised him up to higher places. And Job is an example to where you can look, Dad, 
in his attitudes and his actions to become a faithful father. But I would be remiss if I did not say this, that one greater than Job is among us. Job is not the ultimate example to look for fatherhood. If you want to know what a godly man is, a perfected humanity, then you look not at Job, the greatest in the East, but you look to Jesus Christ, the Son of God who added a human nature to His divine nature. He was truly a perfect man. And like Job, Hebrews tells us that Jesus, though being a perfect man, was taken even to greater heights of glory and that He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Job was just a precursor to Jesus. Job learned obedience through the things he suffered. Thus did Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Bible says that Job withstood the temptations and accusations of the accuser. And we know that in a much greater way, Jesus Christ withstood the temptations and the accusations of the accuser. Satan came to Jesus and three times said, If you are the Son of God, even calling into question the nature of his relationship with his Father, and yet Jesus withstood that. But I think where Job is most like Jesus, and where Jesus is a much greater example of Job is this, that there was a time that Job would take responsibility for the sins of his children, which he himself had not committed, but because he was their father, he understood he was responsible. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took responsibility for every sin you had ever committed, though he himself was not guilty of any one of those sins. Jesus Christ is the example of the head of a humanity, the head of a family, the head of a household, who takes responsibility for the sins of which he himself is not in any sense guilty. So dads, Jesus has taken responsibility for all the sins that have flashed through your mind and all the failures that have come to your consciousness during this sermon. He died and rose again to forgive you of those sins. The cross becomes a solid ground where we began to be fathers. Jesus died for horrible fathers. He died for compromising fathers. He died for fathers that have a temper like that. He took responsibility for those sins, though he himself had never committed them. He was buried. He arose again. And like Job, having experienced death and resurrection, he was then given an audience with his father. He ascended to the right hand of the father where he sits today ever living to make intercessions for sorry dads like us. And that's what this table stands for. It is a visible reminder to sinful dads that our sins have been taken care of in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the bread and the cup about which we are to partake. We thank you that they stand for so much more than what we would initially think. And we thank you most of all that you welcome sinners to this table. This table is not for the healthy, it's for the sick, it's not for the righteous, it's for the unrighteous. 
It's for fathers who have failed in every conceivable way. For children who have been rebellious, for mothers who have been faithless, this table is for the repentant saints of God looking away from themselves and looking to Christ. And Father, for this we give you thanks. Now receive us, Lord, and let your word do its work in our hearts for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.